charge of the site right now. Keep going. Uh, that's our son. He lives in California. Keep going. Um, that's our daughter. Just some fun family pictures. Hannah, her name is. Keep going. Um, and then um, I wanted to show the picture of ice, but there is no picture of ice. So anyway, I just wanted to say that our portion of the world right now is covered in snow and ice, and you probably wonder, oh, what do they do? How do they push a cup in that? But it's incredible. Um, just to live in the Nordics and be a part of that ministry. And one of the unique things about working in the Nordic countries, which are Finland, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, is that they are extremely atheistic, or not even atheistic, they're anti-Christian. So you, you just never meet anybody who has any faith of any type. Occasionally you'll meet somebody, but it's so rare. And just what's been so great about our time there is that God is just really help people come to faith. It's such a magical thing to watch someone, they, they have no idea, they, they don't know who Jesus is, they, they don't, they've never read a Bible, they kind of feel like, oh, it's so negative, and to watch them come to faith has been so amazing, and we've seen many, many young people come to, uh, come to Christ, the region altogether is around 350 members, uh, and many, many young people have uh, become Christians, which is incredible. One of the gentlemen I just want to share about quickly is uh, getting his PhD in neurobiology. Uh, typical, atheistic, never thought about that. And he came to one of our discussion groups. We don't necessarily call them Bible studies. We call them talking about life questions that are deeper. And uh, just to watch his faith grow. And, and we do it by just presenting and lifting up Christ and who he is. And then just when they see the family of God. Those two very simple things. We, we share the gospel, which is good news. We share our lives, and it's magic. They, it's God. They just come to faith. And so this uh, this year, our church in Stockholm is over 180, and which is the largest we've ever been. Uh, so God's really, really been moving. And please come and visit us. If you do, you'll experience snow and ice and all the things that we do together, uh, reaching out to people. So thank you. Amen. Come on, Chris.
several different places. My first was born at the end. 11 of the 15 of us limped off the field. Uh, so it wasn't just that we lost, we were absolutely destroyed. So my kids were there, they, they didn't even know what to do. Good job, Daddy. <laughs>
sermon because there's more and more of them. <laughs> <laughs> and the people from northern Sweden, they do a thing with their breathing. They do a thing, go, if they're really, really convicted, they'll go, and so I was not aware of that when I first started preaching. And I was like, here's a sniffling going around. <laughs>
one of those questions. So I'm going to have dealt with a little bit with what Jesus is teaching and or Jesus' direct life. Every ten of those are more than satisfactorily answered, completely satisfied in a way that really gives you peace inside. All ten. That's why it is the best news that you will ever hear. And you Christians need to be proud of what you have to share. And I, I know this is an awesome church, but we're not talking about sharing about a church. We're talking about sharing the good news. We gathered here because of the good news. You became a Christian because of the good news. If you were invited and you came for some other reason, you're going to find out the reason you actually did come is the good news. Right? So this message of Jesus answers every single question. The only problem is, here's the thing. We have the best news ever as Christians. And this answers the burning questions, the existential questions on everyone's heart. Why isn't there a huge queue, a huge line outside this building with no seating room? Right. You know, why is it that people aren't crowding into churches on a Sunday morning as much as they are to maybe a rugby pitch or going out for a bike ride? Could it be maybe the way we're explaining the gospel? Mm. Take a look at this short film and see if you recognize yourself in here. Come on, bro. <laughs> what do you think when you hear the word? Gospel. Do you imagine a monk praying or a saint walking around with a halo over his head? Or do you imagine a family who live in your street who never smoke, drink, or swear on how annoying it is when their lawn is always perfect and their children look like tiny angels who floated down from the golden streets on high? Well, it actually doesn't mean anything. We can pick up. The word gospel just means good news. It's not a religious concept reserved for holy people. It's just fantastic news. Absolutely everyone. No exceptions. Good news for broken people and those who have been abused by life. That no one is beyond repair. Good news for the outcasts and the ones who don't fit in. That there are no outsiders for the love of God. Good news for the ones who are burned out in church and hurt by religion. That Jesus is a person in love with you. Not an institution that makes mistakes. Good news for the ones who find prayer boring, the Bible difficult, and just aren't very spiritual. Because grace is much bigger than that. Good news for those who have everything they want but still feel empty. Because satisfaction and joy doesn't come from cash, or a nice house, or a big fancy car. It comes from knowing why you were made, and the one who made you. So, now for the awkward question. If we have such unbelievably good news for absolutely everyone, how come people aren't lining up to hear it? How come people roll their eyes and keep walking when they hear street preachers yelling at the top of their lungs? How come the local gospel mission isn't bursting at the scenes like the Apple Store at Christmas time? Are we telling it wrong? You see, Christians aren't perfect. I'm sure you figured that out by now. As a wise man once told us, if a Christian gets disconnected from Christ, you're just left with Ian. And this kind of Ian can be a really nasty chap. Loud, mean, and more interested in the rules than people. Ian makes it sound like the gospel is only good news for people who are just like him and don't challenge any of his assumptions. Ian used the gospel to put himself on a pedestal so we can point out other people's flaws from up there and feel better about himself. At his worst, Ian tried to twist the promises of the gospel to play on the vulnerable and to take their hard-earned money. And Ian even had the audacity to turn the gospel into campaign slogans and political propaganda to gain power for himself. 
We need to wrestle the gospel back off Eve and make it sound like good news again. Because if it doesn't sound like good news, it isn't the gospel and it isn't Jesus. You see, if religion doesn't lead you to Jesus, then it's a train you don't ever want to get on. It's just not enough on its own. We need to reclaim some of the amazing things that Eve has hijacked and make them gospel again. Things like the word evangelical. Now, don't be scared. This word is not political ammunition. It's not a pre-warning of an impending seals pitch. It just means carrier of good news. Isn't that beautiful? We don't have to peddle a religious product or bang the drum of any political party. We just carry good news without agenda. You see, here's the human problem. We are all aching for a real, meaningful, joyful life. But let's be honest, none of us have found it on our own. Life is not some philosophical idea that's always out of reach. It's a person, and he is reaching out to us. You may have heard the saying that the world will never understand the good news until they understand the bad news. But in a world so filled with bad news, fake news, tragic news, I just don't know if that's true anymore. I don't know if they can hear it. It's not that we don't believe in the problem of sin and the brokenness of humanity, but friends, we have a way better story to tell. We have a cross, we have a resurrection, we have a coming king, we have a rescuer and a savior who can put all things right. We're telling the story that Jesus is and always will be the real good news. That idea might be too simple for some or too naive for others, but that's the amazing truth. That's the gospel for absolutely everyone, including Ian. Yay! That's good news worth sharing. Awesome. Alright, so, did you recognize yourself in there? Mike, maybe you are Ian, who knows? Or if you're a skeptic, maybe you, uh, as a visitor today, you've heard something that's a little bit imbalanced. So we're going to try to get back to what is the really, really good news. And in order to do that, what I've decided to do is actually look at how Jesus shared the good news himself for the very first time. The day he raised from the dead, Jesus shared his faith. He shared the good news. So how did Jesus do it? The very first time he's going to share the good news. Look over in Luke chapter 24. My very first point, very long title, but it says it all, so if you write down the title, you don't have to take any more notes. <laughs> your lack of faith can blind you to the best news right in front of your face. Your lack of faith can blind you to the best news right in front of your face. This is the third day after Jesus had been executed and the day of his resurrection. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them then Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and were before God and all people. And our chief priests and deliverers, our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We can stop there. Okay, I said this is the third day after Jesus was executed, the first the day of his resurrection. And he, he joins these two guys on the road. Cleopas, we know the name, and some Bible scholars say because he eventually became a pillar in the early church in Jerusalem. And that's why they mention him. So a reader direct, oh, it's Cleopas. Was he that guy? And the other guy, we never know what happened to him. But they're not in a good mood. These two guys are walking along, and they're talking to each other. You know, we, they were followers of Jesus. They weren't among the twelve, but they were definitely disciples of Jesus up to that point in time. And they're thinking, did we make a mistake? We thought this guy was going to redeem Israel. We thought this was the Messiah. This was the big prophet. And look what happened to him. The, the worst of all, the, the most cursed of deaths of being, being crucified. This is a man cursed by God, it seems. I mean, they were just so negative. And Jesus comes along next to them. And it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Or they, they were kind of had like a veil over their eyes. Even when Jesus comes and walks along with them. They didn't see the good news right in front of their face. They were even irritated. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? Like, are you the only, the only guy in all of Jerusalem who hasn't figured out what's been going on? I mean, Jesus must have loved that moment. Right. In the Swedish translation of the Bible, Jesus literally says a word that would be equivalent to, duh, duh. Like, why? I'm clueless. Um, it, it's very funny in the modern Swedish translation. Jesus appears to be a, a, a dumbfounded idiot, actually. Like, what, what's going on? Tell me. For me. And they go, okay, they explain the whole Jesus story to Jesus standing there. They didn't see. They didn't even recognize what's going on. Were, this reminds me, like I said, if you have lack of faith, you'd be blinded to the very best news right in front of your face. Yeah. Um, I have a, a big buddy of mine at my gym who I started studying the Bible with, and he had not believed in God. He came the whole way to believing God exists and that Jesus might be the Son of God. And he was making some great progress, and then he just stopped studying the Bible. Just, I, I don't want to do it anymore. Okay? said, so uh, can, we, can we meet? And I, I tried to meet with him there at the gym and talk a little bit. And he says, here's the issue. I am so stressed by stress. I simply can't take the time to spend a while. I actually, uh, I was recommended by my boss here at the gym. as a trainer at the gym because I get irritated with my clients and things like this. And I need to take a stress management course. And I have no inner peace. And I need to get some counseling. So I, I simply don't have time for God. I said, wait, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are burdened and, 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 you know, weary, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will, you know, give you peace in your souls. I mean, Jesus is coming. This is about inner peace. This is about the feeling of getting one with yourself and with God and with your fellow man. It's the core of the message is inner peace and, and purpose. And do you understand? I am too stressed to find this thing that Jesus is talking about. I've got to go to this course. I've got to get anger management and stress. That's what this book is. I'm telling you, come on, this is the good thing. No, no, I'm too, he's literally, it's like we're talking past each other. He just, and at this point, Jason isn't studying, but pray for him to wake up after his anger management when it doesn't work, that course, and he'll come back to Jesus. Amen. But we can be like that as Christians. We walk around. We have, we have so the true. answers. We have the ultimate comforter, the ultimate purpose in life. And we walk around discontent, agitated, looking for something else. Yeah. Jesus. 
don't have to tell me everything that happened in Jerusalem. You know? And, um, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, the women went to the grave, and they, the tomb was empty. They heard all that. And the women reported there was a vision of angels. Oh, and they reported that. And then you sent some of your own guys to the tomb, and we found it as the women said. They didn't find his body. And it's like, you guys, you have all of this good news. You have all these facts. And your conclusion is Jesus died. Probably somebody stole the body. They focused on the death of Jesus and not his resurrection. Amen. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So how did Jesus begin talking to them? Well, focus here on this last verse here, Luke 24. Jesus tells them the good news about himself. How did he actually do that? This is the explanation the very first time of the good news from Jesus himself. And the verse simply says, in verse 27... And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what I decided to do is just look at a, a few of these so that we don't have an 18-hour sermon. But to look at Moses and some of the prophets. What Jesus must have used was the Old Testament to explain how good the good news really is. And Moses would have been the very first prophecy of the coming Messiah is in Genesis chapter 3. And then I just took a sampling because there's almost 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Led me to faith in the Bible before I was a Christian and I was skeptical of the Bible and Christianity. That these prophecies were written down in some cases a thousand years in advance, 1400 years in advance. And all were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And we have the archaeological proof in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they were yeah. written way in advance. We have the proof in Jesus' life that they were fulfilled. And they were fulfilled by actually enemies to Jesus, not Jesus himself, but people who wanted to kill Jesus. Yeah. So this convinced me the Bible is true and Jesus is the Son of God, for those of you who might be a little skeptical. But let's look at this very first one. The one in Genesis chapter 3 was written down about 1400 B.C. And this is in the context of Adam and Eve had just sinned. They had brought sin into humanity were going to be unfortunately cursed by God because they were disobedient. They had to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But even in that extremely disciplinary moment, God gave grace and gave hope. Mm -hmm. In the midst of pronouncing the curse on what was going to happen to mankind, he actually pronounced the curse on Satan himself through the coming Messiah. And the first prophecy of the Messiah didn't have to do with you and me, but it had to do with dealing with Satan. Sometimes we become so humanistic and self-centered, we think everything about Jesus is about us. And ultimately will benefit us, but the very first prophecy was about what Jesus, the Messiah, is going to do to Satan himself. Yeah. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse, actually verse 14, we can begin there. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, tempted Adam and Eve, got them to fall. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or animosity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, bruising your head or crushing your head, he will kill you, Satan. Bruise his heel, you will injure him severely. And indeed, Jesus was abandoned, tortured, and crucified. His heel was bruised, but he in turn crushed the head of Satan. Did you ever wonder all the satanic interactions with Jesus when he was on, on the planet? Why this actually started this way? It literally follows through, almost chronologically, the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 4, he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit takes him out into the desert. The very first thing that happens, Jesus 
the Messiah takes on Satan one-on-one -on -one out of the desert. Fasting 40 days, tempted in every way, and it's kind of another picture of Israel when they were taken out of Egypt into the desert, tempted by Satan for 40 years. Yeah. But they completely blew it. Mm. So God had to redo with Israel his son, Jesus, another time. And that was the very first thing that happened. That he withstood all the temptations of Satan, showing himself to be this Messiah. When Jesus talked about Matthew chapter 12, he was driving out demons. He'd simply start preaching in synagogues, and people who were demon-possessed screamed out, We know who you are, the Holy One of God! You know, he had to silence them and exercise all these demons out of all these people. Satan himself was going after the Messiah, and Jesus was throwing him out. And in particular, Matthew 12, when he was casting out demons, he was accused by some of his enemies that he was casting out demons by the prince of demons. And he says, wait a minute, you can't have a house divided against itself. That won't stand. And well, let me give you a little parable here. If you know there's a strong man in his house, you can't plunder his house. You can't rob him unless you first go in and tie him up. Then you can take all the stuff out of his house. Yeah. Of course, that was a picture of the strong man named Satan. And I have to bind Satan before I can take the captives that he's taking captive to himself. And what you're seeing is me taking back captives. These people I'm driving demons out of, I'm bringing them back out of the power of evil to God. And that's because I have found the strong man. Wow. I have found the strong man here. Have you ever wondered, you Bible readers, why there's so many demons flying out of people in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Acts, there's so many people, the demons flying out, but not near as many. Then you get to the letters of Paul and Peter and John, there's almost nothing about demon possession. That's not because we discovered, oh, they really meant epilepsy and in a more modern version, it was kind of mental illness. It wasn't really demon possession. And we try and sanitize the text so that it's appealing to postmodern people. No, it was real demon possession. And what Jesus did is he bound the strong man when he was on earth. He severely limited the powers of Satan. So back in those days more than today, we, even atheistic people in Sweden, are protected now by Satan being bound and limited. It's kind of like taking a pit bull that's trained to attack people and putting him on a chain. So the pit bull is Satan, is still the pit bull. And he can't hurt you outside of the range of his chain. But people who come inside the range of that chain, they can be torn to pieces. And I know people who mess around with voodoo, black magic, calling upon the dead, and there's some seriously messed up, possessed people that I have met in my life. That's because they got inside the range of that chain. But for Christians and the rest of the world, we're protected for now, for a time. Because of what Jesus did. That was the very, that's just one of the prophecies. Yeah. Jesus must have gone back and told Cleopas and his friend, you remember all the demons flying out? What do you think that was all about? That's Genesis 3. Mm -hmm. This is me. I'm crushing the head of Satan, man. Yeah. You've seen me doing this stuff. Yeah. And of course, what does that have to do with us? Uh, how do we apply this to ourselves? James chapter 4, this is the promise for every single Christian. If you're wondering as a non-Christian, for what use is Jesus in my life? Well, this is a pretty big one. Power over Satan. How's that for us? How's that for a starter? James chapter 4, verse 7, it simply says here, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Get humble before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will run away from you. That power is now ours. Against Satan. Amen. Awesome. This guy here, serial killer, died in 1994 in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer. He abused, killed, and cannibalized 17 men. They found body parts of, of 11 corpses in his 
refrigerator and freezer in his apartment the day he was arrested. And he did all kinds of horrible things to these men, uh, even before, after they were dead, and then he ate them. He was put to a maximum security prison for life, uh, but actually an evangelist from the Church of Christ in Texas went in to study the Bible with him. And by opening this book, a book, where he's reading words off of a page about Jesus, about what sin is, he actually became a Christian. Wow. And he gets baptized in prison for his sins to be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit wow. as a disciple of Jesus. Wow. One of our own evangelists from the Church of Christ did that. Okay? Now, when he was in an interview, and they asked him, how, what, because nobody really believes that he really got converted, well, how could you be such a monster before? And he goes, I held accountable to no one. I was an atheist. I felt, if I'm not accountable to anyone, I can do whatever I want, to do whatever I want. I get the most out of life, even sick as it is. It's my life to live, burn, and do whatever. And when I die, I just die. Not accountable. But he said, when I read the Bible, I realized I am created. Every other person is a creation. And I'm going to be held accountable for how I use my life. And he had remorse. He truly was convicted of what he had done. Why he got killed is he felt so bad for how he had intimidated the other prisoners. They were all terrified of him. That he went around and apologized to other inmates about his behavior. Wow. Of course, inmates in a maximum security prison don't see that as, oh, wow, he repented. They see that as weakness. Yeah. And this was their chance to get back on the man. So one of the inmates close to him took a broom handle and beat him to death. Wow. And, and he was killed in prison. But they attacked him because his life had changed so radically. So this was about seven months after his conversion. He was killed in prison. When I say that Jesus drives out all demons and conquers all evil, I mean it. Yeah. For real. What problem do you have in your character compared to Jeffrey Dahmer? What sin are you struggling with? What, what a pornographic addiction do you, do you have going on? What do you have going on that is more intense than what took hold of this guy? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Killed and cannibalized 17 people and stored them in his refrigerator for later sandwiches. And he was radically changed because of this book. Because it's the living and abiding word of God. It's the good news. It is the power over Satan. There is nothing in your life that you cannot conquer with the power of God. I don't care how long you've been struggling with it. You haven't submitted it fully to God. What else? Jesus also went on with the good news and just one of the other prophets he must have used, probably the Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter 16. Because Cleopas and his friends are standing there on the road, like getting convicted by this Bible study, like, oh my goodness, we never put these things together. But they still haven't put together resurrection from the dead. They're, you know, they still haven't gotten that the guy standing here was dead, now alive. That didn't make sense to the early Christians. That's why none of the apostles showed up at the tomb on the third day expecting he'd be raised from the dead. Until the women found it empty. They didn't even get it. So he had to go, he must have used Psalm 16 and said, okay, let me explain what's going on right in front of you here. Alright? Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or abandon my soul to the kingdom of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand and pleasures forevermore, eternal life. And you won't let my, my flesh rot in the grave. You're, gonna, you're not going to keep my soul in the kingdom of the dead. I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to come out of the kingdom of the 
dead. I'm going to be restored physically, a physical resurrection. My flesh won't see corruption. And there'll be joy for everyone. Cleopas and your friend. Hello. Resurrection, man. Of course the grave was empty. Now, if that's not good news for you, you're either too young to be thinking about that, or you didn't hear anything I just said. Come on, Chris. After my rugby, American football, all kinds of other things, I have a fake hip, a fake ankle, my knee's been operated on, back's been operated on, both shoulders have been operated on. Okay, so I see corruption every morning when I look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm looking at corruption. I don't even stand straight anymore. I stood next to Dave. He said, you can't be six foot tall. And I said, well, I used to be six foot tall. You know, the carpet just compacted me by day by day. Uh, who knows? Give me another 10 or 15 years and I'll be just like life. You know, it's, it's not a glorious thing. And, it, and if, you're, if your joy is in your physical prowess or good health or whatever, well, you're a, you're, it's a losing battle. Okay? Um, that's just the way it is. But for me, thinking about a new body, physical resurrection from the dead, and a biggest fear most people have, what happens on the other side? This is an answer to question number nine, what happens when we die? The other one was an answer to question number four. Where, why is the world so messed up and evil? Well, Satan is real. His powers are real. Check, check. These are two huge answers to these big questions. Isaiah 730 BC wrote these things down. This is an answer to question number three. 
will I ever be truly happy? You're not going to be happy in and of yourself. Jesus has to take away your sorrows. It's a person who, as much as I want to explain my deepest sorrow when my father died unsaved and I was holding his hand, I can explain it to my wife. She loves me. She's been with me 32 years. But she can't really feel that, even if she wants to. Jesus was really with me. Jesus was there in the room. Not only that, Jesus loved my dad more than I ever will. He truly can understand and take away my sorrows. If you try to get happy yourself, it's not going to happen. You need someone else, the power of Jesus, to take away your sorrows for real. Verse 5, it says, Jesus was wounded for our sins. Okay, that helps us with question 7 about what is right and wrong. In order to understand what sin is, you understand what right and wrong is. And that's part of, part of change, is realizing where did I go and what's the right way to go. Okay? The, the, the rest of verse 5, Jesus gives us inner peace. It was his sacrifice for our own peace. That's the answer to question 5. How do I find inner peace? You don't find it. Jesus gives it to you, but it only comes after you're forgiven and after your sorrows are taken away. Yeah. It all fits together. If you have a guilty conscience for the sins in your life, you can't just go around forgiving yourself or you know, somebody else might forgive you, but you know deep down inside you need a deeper forgiveness. Yeah. That's where the inner peace comes after those first other two. Then in verse 6, he says, we've all gone astray, uh, but Jesus pulls us back into the right way. What's the direction of our lives? Is there, is there, you know, does it make sense? That's the answer to question eight. Jesus gives us a direction. This is the way to live life. This is how you love your neighbor. This is how you live. Jesus takes away our guilt. Jesus' sacrifice makes us all sons and daughters of God in verse 10. If that's not an answer to what's my identity, what's my role in the cosmos, the greatest identity you could possibly have is being a son or daughter of God himself. Incredible answer to who you are and how does this all make sense? Yeah. And then finally, verse 11, through Jesus' knowledge, we're all made righteous. He gives us this righteousness. This is also how we know right from wrong. We see how Jesus lived. We see what he rejected, what he accepted. And we follow in his path. He is just checking off question after question after question here. Yeah. But basically, question 2, 3, 5, 6, 8, and 9 are all answered by these passages we've looked at. And then, what's the meaning of life? The most famous verse in probably the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. So, of course, the meaning of life is understand how much God loves you, accept that, and love him back. This is the point. And then from that, we love other people. This is how we find love. We love 1 John 4.19 because he loved us. See, that's what gives us the strength to truly love other people. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Come on, I think that most Christians, including myself, this is why I did a review of the basics for my own life, don't really appreciate the good news. What do I do? And this passage says that all the prophets in the Bible, and all the angels, and all the heavens, have longed to understand this message before God revealed it. Wow. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So he's basically saying, you've got all these prophets, 40 or 50 of them in the Old Testament. And I, I, don't, I don't 
know what it's like in heaven when people are waiting there consciously or unconsciously, but imagine if it was kind of a conscious, the witnesses of heaven. And one of the old prophets, Moses gets up there, and he knew that he had talked about in Genesis 3 that Satan's going to get his head crushed. Well, it didn't happen in my lifetime. Gosh, when's that going to happen? And the next prophet comes up. You know, you have you have some other guy from the Old Testament going up. You have Ezekiel coming up there. He's prophesying stuff. And, well, did it happen in your life? No, uh, you know, I I said some stuff too about this that happened. Then Isaiah shows up, and he's wondering, when's this suffering servant going to come and take away our sorrows and give us peace? And did it happen in your? No, it didn't happen in mine. And at the end of the Old Testament, you have all the prophets lined up, kind of looking at each other, talking. What? What's, what's happening here? And then the angels know God is doing something in the back room of heaven, some secret, you know, major rescue plan going on, but they, they're not allowed to go back in that room. They don't know what's happening. And they, they creep to the edge of the clouds and kind of look down there, and what's going on? What is happening? And when he finally said, time to go, guys, go and announce to those shepherds. Tell them now that we're breaking into human existence. This is why I'm going myself. Wow. Whoa! And then all the pieces fell together. Yeah. All the angels in heaven love to figure out what is going on. What is this? What is this mission? What is this message? Every prophet, is this about us? Is this our lifetime? No. When is it then? When is it? Do you, when you open your Bible, is that what you feel like? Wow. All the prophets and angels long have this entire finished book. Wow. Incredible. When you share your faith, you think all the supernatural beings in the universe wanted to know this message. That I'm about to share here on Queen's Do you accept what you think about this? This is the good news. And finally, their eyes were We'll finish back here in Luke 24. Come on, bro. Hopefully your eyes are getting open. Yeah. And you're sitting here thinking, man, am I glad I'm a Christian. Yeah, you ever have those moments where you really believe the Bible and you read something? No, I really believe the Bible. Yeah. You know? Oh, you're happy to be a Christian. No, I'm, no, I'm really happy to be a Christian. And if you're sitting there non-Christian, it's like, you know, get on the stick, man. This is the best news happening right here. Luke 24, verse 28. So they drew near the, to the village to which they were going. Going, He asked as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now for us men. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their side. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened to them on the road, and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Wow. Then their eyes were opened. It took two things when they personally invited Jesus into their life. Come on in and eat with us. Let's get personal. Let's sit down and talk about this more. When they opened up their personal life to him, and then when they broke the bread. And there's enough evidence for the Last Supper that the twelve weren't the only ones at the Last Supper where Jesus broke the bread and shared the cup for the first time. It was a large room, and that's why when he said one of you is going to be training, which is it's one of the twelve, because there's probably many more in the room. There's probably the upper room where the 120 were. So it's very possible Cleopas and his friends were in that upper room and saw the breaking of the bread. And they were wondering, what is this all about? But when Jesus broke the bread, they realized... He said he'd give his life for us. Jesus loves us so much, he will die for us. And that's when they recognize it. 